Floods and fires, drought and disease. In recent decades, we've witnessed a host of natural disasters around the world of almost biblical proportions. As someone that lives in a town that regularly floods, to the extent that I've seen cars carried down the road by water, I know that this can be really terrifying. As scientists warn of the increasing dangers of climate change, how can we understand our role in causing but also combating environmental disaster? We're told to be kind of stewards of the earth, and what does that mean when we're seeing kind of climate collapse in all around the world, really, and all over the news? So, what might be preventing people today from caring for the earth and putting nature first? Everything is about connectivity, and with so much connectivity, I've often felt the most disconnected with both my friends, myself, my family. There's a deeper connection that people need to make about what they're doing and the impact it'll have on generations way after us. The picture is bleak, but it's not without hope, and change is still possible. What can we do to intervene in the global environmental crisis and to change the future of our planet? We were sitting in front and in a bank uh, in meditation and that seemed to be just such a different way of being at a protest that was based on compassion and peace. In this episode, I talked to four young people from different religions about the ways in which they look to their faiths to answer these questions and many more. I'm Holly Morse and welcome to World of Belief. In this podcast, I seek out fascinating personal stories about how people have experienced for themselves some of the big challenges facing us in the world today. It's a really lovely, sunny, if a little windy day here in London's Hyde Park. I'm standing on the grass close to Speaker's Corner and I'm surrounded by a vibrant and diverse crowd of people. They're chanting, they're chilling, they're chatting and all around me are colourful banners and flags blowing in the breeze. This is what an Extinction Rebellion march looks like. But you might be wondering why I'm here. Well, somewhere in this crowd are a couple of people I want to meet whose faith motivates them to take non-violent, direct action as part of this big protest. My name is Holly Anna Peterson, so I'm part of Christian Climate Action. For me, such a core part of my Christian faith is... You know, we're told to love thy neighbour. You know, what does that mean in practice? When we hear kind of about our brothers and sisters around the world who are wondering when the next rains are going to come, whether they're going to be able to kind of feed their children, seeing their homes being destroyed, it just really makes me wonder how we can love thy neighbour kind of properly in a deep way. And if we think about kind of that the first part of the Bible is the creation story. You know, if it starts with that, then how important is that? We're told to be kind of stewards of the earth. And what does that mean when we're seeing kind of climate collapse in all around the world, really, and all over the news? When we look around creation, you know, we can see the spirit of God because, you know, the spirit of God is in everything that we can see. It's such a beautiful creation as well. And I guess kind of if through our greed and our selfishness we're destroying that, that just kind of feels something which is so deeply wrong. And so if we have a love which casts out fear, using that to protect what God has given us to kind of appreciate for a while seems really, really important. And, you know, we're here as part of 
uh, Extinction Rebellion Rebellion, and a big part of that is non-violent but direct action. How does that weave into Christian tradition and, and your understanding of your religion? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because I think kind of quite a lot of Christians might get the whole environmental protection, but maybe in terms of things like recycling and things like that. But I've been involved in the climate movement for quite a while. So there's been lots of, you know, trying to encourage people to recycle, trying to encourage people to drive their cars, less things like that. But it's just not creating the change that's needed. So I guess the question is, so what is going to create the change that's needed? And, you know, we believe in a Christ which is a sacrificial Christ. When he went to the temple and he saw the injustice there, he didn't write, start a petition, he didn't kind of go and speak to the temple leader, he turned over the tables, drove out the moneylenders he carried out non-violent direct action and so one of the key principles of non-violent direct action is sacrifice and I just really love the way that when I see non-violent direct action happening, I can almost kind of feel the principles also of Christianity at play and I just love how transformational I can kind of see that being. So what does Christian direct action look like in practical terms? I guess like everything we do is interwoven with prayer so we always pray about every action when we've done blockings of roads or kind of on top of trains things like that. We've had situations where we've taken communion in those moments or we've prayed in those moments. If we believe that this is an act of worship, an act of protecting creation then we I guess need God to be alongside us I find protests like this actually really draining I find them really difficult Um, I do them because I think it's important but I feel like I need God to give me the bravery and the kind of energy levels to be here and so really being able to draw upon God to kind of keep us grounded keep us kind of calm um, is an important part of it as well May all beings be happy. This is Katcha Beren. Katcha is a Buddhist practicing in the Tree Ratna tradition and is one of the coordinators of XR Buddhists, a group who regularly join in XR actions. On a day like this, where it's bigger actions with loads and loads of different groups that are coming together, we act a bit like water. We meet in the morning, we obviously do our meditation, our check-in to make sure we're resourced, and then we might just sit along uh, where something's going on. I came across Buddhism basically when the other kids in my school mostly went through confirmation. I read loads of books and I read this book which was a bit like uh, Sophie's World but about different religions and at one point it explained the Four Noble Truths which are some of the basic teaching of Buddhism. So there's the acknowledgement that our experience in this world is ultimately unsatisfactory and that there is a way out out of that and then Buddhism describes a a path to practice out of this unsatisfactoriness by looking at our own experience and looking at uh, where greed, hatred and delusion play into them uh, and how we can practice with our minds, how we can practice ethics uh, um, in order to liberate ourselves. And um, I had quite a complicated upbringing and that really, really sort of resonated with me, that fundamental acknowledgement that there is suffering and that I wouldn't have to wait for like another world or somebody to come and liberate me, but there was something I could fundamentally do about it. So one ideal in Buddhism that's really quite inspiring to me is this bodhisattva ideal. So that is basically a vow to 
practice until all beings are liberated. So that means I don't just practice for myself to just be a nicer being, but really for everyone. And I think the way I've sort of looked at that is that in order for everyone to be liberated and attain their potential, fundamental things need to be in place, like health, like being able to survive. And I think climate change is threatening a lot of that. So already now people are suffering from like floods and drought and pandemics that are linked to climate change. And there's going to be more of that in the future. So for me, practicing um, Buddhism and practicing compassion is really linked to what I'm doing here because it's an expression of that. And I think the other thing that's really, really quite fundamental is there are these four Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes. So that's loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion and equanimity. And these are four qualities that we're practicing. And I think that's something that we can really bring into situations like these. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And that kind of brings me on to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is you know, you're here as a Buddhist and the Extinction Rebellion is about direct action and about kind of communal direct action. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about how, as a Buddhist, you participate in direct action and what that means to you. Before I ever took part in, like, Buddhist activism, I took part in activism and it felt to me that often it was a bit us and them. It was often fluid by anger and frustration. And so for me, when I first came along, and that was actually an action from the, the predecessor of Extinction Rebellion Buddhist, a group called Dance, we were sitting in front and in a bank uh, in meditation and that seemed to be just such a different way of being at a protest that was based on compassion and peace. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was interesting as we sort of first met and we were part of the meditation at the very beginning, it was interesting to hear you talk about intention. Yeah, so it's, I think, yeah, it is this about, like, what is my intention, what is my mental state? Am I coming from an openness, from a, like, place of loving kindness and compassion, or am I coming from a place of controlling things? For me, non-violence means not just to not be physically violent, but it it means to really come from a place where my loving kindness also extends to those investing in oil and gas and everybody who's sort of like involved in doing these actions that I'm basically here to advocate against. But, so I think it is that sort of like we are all humans and yeah, trying to include everyone in, in loving kindness, which can be quite a challenge sometimes. But I think some of the actions there can be unhappiness, there can be a bit of a charge because we might be blocking something, we might be in the way of people trying to go about their daily lives and the police might feel like we might have to move away or whatever, so it can get quite charged. And I think in particular, we can help by our meditative practice, but also we've got a few people who are really very skilled in nonviolent communication, for example, in calming down big groups of people. For some people, it is really their practice to go all in and get arrested. But um, not everybody can or wants to do that. And um, I think it's really important to show 
many, many different ways in which we can do something about the climate. So I think that's, that's really important. After meeting Katja and Holly, I was left reflecting on the urgency with which they both talked about a need for change in practice and policy around the climate crisis and the depth of feeling about how their religious lives would be central to bringing this about. I was also really struck by the way that, though from different religions, they shared a sense of responsibility and a duty of care to nature. But is this the case for folks from all religions? On a journey to find out more, I travelled north to West Yorkshire to meet Amandeep Kaur Mann, co-founder of EcoSeek UK. So Amandeep, why have you brought us here today? Hi, we're at Cowan Calf Rocks in Ilkley in Yorkshire. Um, it's a this might be a far cry from the intensity and action of the XR March. But being here at the Cow and Calf Rocks with Amandeep highlights another very different, equally important way of engaging with the environment. Here, we're in what feels like a remote part of England, but in fact, we're only 10 minutes away from the bustling town of Ilkley. Amandeep said she wanted to bring me here because it was the kind of place she wouldn't have had a chance to visit as a child. Her parents preferred their life in the city, a world away from their rural homeland in Punjab. As we looked at the wonderful view that surrounded us, Amandeep talked to me about her deep connection to the environment and to her faith, which led her to leave her career in the world of finance and to begin a job in sustainability, ultimately then going on to set up EcoSeek UK. Starting EcoSeek UK came from the need to link my faith and the values that you know I've been brought up with, with my everyday life. So it determined my career path. It determined, you know, the location that I live in, the hobbies and interests that I have. And so starting EcoSeek UK was all about providing a platform for people who are like-minded. And even those who aren't, it was all about unity on the topic of nature. Because within the Sikh faith, one of the main concepts is ik ongar, and that means one. Ik means one. And that is the first word of the Holy Scripture, which is called Guru Granth Sahib Ji. So if ik and the oneness is recognised in all creation, then that means that climate change is actually a really big part of, you know, our, it should be a part of our understanding of, of life. And recognising that oneness comes from the other values which Sikhs are encouraged to live out as much as possible. And that's called seva. Seva is selfless service. So it's working to serve without any reward and climate change really is about that because some of the people that we're helping through our actions against climate change are people that we will never meet or see. Concepts like Sarbat Dapala, we say that at the end of every Sikh prayer. And that means prosperity for all. And a number of those teachings that you've just uh, explained to us also resonate really strongly with social justice within the Sikh religion. So it'd be really interesting to hear how work around climate justice and work around social justice kind of connect for you in what you do with EcoSeek UK. Absolutely. So throughout the Sikh history, we've got 10 gurus. And when it came to the 10th guru, he said, right, well, we need some sort of identity now because when social justice is needed, there needs to be an identifiable group of people that everyone can go to for help. And 1699, when the first baptism happened, a very strong identity of the Khalsa was created. And that was all about being fearless, about being pioneering in activity that's 
going to empower people, protect people. So vulnerability um, and feeling like you've been forgotten, those are the groups of people that Sikhs are meant to be helping. And so when we look at the Global South and we look at other people you know, who are suffering from the effects of climate change, that really fits in about why the Khalsa was created, the brotherhood of you know, social justice. And linking climate justice and social justice is one of the big parts of our responsibility in EcoSeq UK. It's because there's a deeper connection that people need to make about what they're doing and the impact it will have on generations way after us. One of the things it would be really interesting to hear a bit more about would be how you see religion and religious groups in particular having a special space or a a very unique space in climate justice action that can kind of change people's perceptions around both religion and climate. I think that when someone of faith speaks to their faith community, it will be so much more impactful if it comes from a religious leader perhaps or someone that people actively engage with. And I think engagement's the main thing. How do we engage people and make it feel relevant to them? And that sense of responsibility and duty around social justice. And in the UK, we have to look back to Punjab because so many of the UK Sikh population, their ancestry comes from Punjab. And Punjab is all about the land. You know, there's so many families that have ancestry in farming. But when migrant populations have come to the UK, they have kind of dropped that element of it. And I feel I feel like a bit of a lost generation sometimes because we're first generation. We're born here. We have one foot in Punjab because we've been there and we've seen our ancestral home, which we still own. I've still got the farming land that has been farmed for generations. My dad talks about how he used to grow watermelons and, you know, all these things. And he knows the land. And yet I'm here and I don't know. I don't have those skills to even, you know, plant my own herbs or vegetables and things because my parents were always of the thinking that we've come from that. For our children, we want the Western life. We want them to work in offices. We don't want them to be outdoors in the in the boiling heat and toiling away. We want them to be indoors. And that indoors and gadgets and electronics, that appeal has meant that we're a little bit disadvantaged, I feel. What kind of scope does climate justice have for supporting greater interfaith connections and also connections between faith groups and secular community? Well, we've represented the Sikh community on many um, occasions where there have been interfaith dialogues happening. When you look at all the faiths and how they talk about nature, that is one area that we definitely can agree on. And the more we can see that unites us than divides us, the better. And also... Coming to the Cow and Calf's Rocks in Ilkley uh, takes me back to a memory, which is a conversation I had with Bob. He was from a very middle-class white background, very different to me, but we were both in sustainability jobs professionally. And he asked me where I lived. And when I told him that I'd moved out from an inner city area, but not too far out so we could still go back because that's where the Gurdwara was, he said to me, well, I live near the Ilkley Moors because that's my place of worship. And that really struck a chord with me because it's so true. He's not going to a church to worship, but his worship of nature is very similar to what what we're doing in a Gurdwara. So that conversation will always stay with me because just because somebody says they're not of a particular faith, there's so much commonality that we still have in how we view nature and how important it is for us. Meeting Amandeep highlighted for me how influential home life is for the way that we engage with the environment. Reflecting on the importance of place, I wanted to finish this podcast by meeting someone who volunteers at a site that has been largely built around beliefs to do with our relationship with nature. 
Bhaktivedanta Manor is the UK home of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, also known as the Hare Krishna Movement. The manor houses, alongside a beautiful temple and a monastery, a farm that's been set up on Hindu principles and includes a wonderful resident herd of sacred cows. Hi, it's great to meet you. I'm Holly. As I arrive, I'm greeted by Sanjay, who works at the farm. Welcome to Bhaktivedanta Manor. We sit together in a beautifully decorated, colourful cart tethered to two magnificent oxen. And as we share some delicious vegetarian food, Sanjay chats to me about spirituality, nature and connectedness. We believe that cows are extremely sacred. We see them as our mothers and they provide the most nourishing milk. And the boys, the oxen, they help us on the farm. So we avoid using tractors as much as possible. And the oxen pull various things. Could be a plow, could be a cart. And the idea is to show the world that cows and oxen have a really important place in society. And killing them for the sake of just eating them is is a huge sin. And we need to show them the utmost respect and work side by side with each other. And can you tell me a little bit about the traditions, the teachings that are part of the belief that the cow is a, is a mother to humans? So the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, Srila Prabhupada, came from India, came to the West with a whole catalogue of Vedic knowledge, Vedic wisdom. And he broke it down in a really accessible way with various books such as the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam. And within the scriptures, Krishna is telling us, so God is telling us the importance of cows and oxen and bulls and how we should treat them, what is their purpose in society, what is our purpose in society. And Mother Earth needs to be looked after properly and we need to be working with her in a harmonious way. Current agricultural techniques and methods, they exploit Mother Earth. Whereas for us, we need to work in a symbiotic way, in a mutualistic way. Yeah, I can absolutely tell that these two love human company. They've been letting me give them a good pet and a stroke, and they seem to be enjoying that. But maybe we could go take a look at the cows and see where the other stuff to do with the dairy production uh, happens. Yeah, let's go. So here we are at the entrance of the Goshala, and Goshala means cow protection center it's like a shelter a shelter for cows a sanctuary for cows on the left we have our little kitchen just over here on the right we have just a little gift shop and we're just going to head down and just turn left and we're going to go see some of our dairy cows okay so what this place is actually is this is our dairy parlor we're inside now you can see we have various stalls The cows are just in that pen over here. We'll call their names individually and they'll walk up into one of the stalls. Here will be a bucket of food. The cow will eat the food. And then the milker will just perch down there and hand milk her. All the while, some beautiful Hare Krishna chanting is being played on the speakers. It's a very spiritual atmosphere in this moment. The idea of hand milking is that the milker and the cow have a very personal relationship. Right now in society, we're very disconnected with the food that we eat. Whereas what we're trying to do is re-establish that connection with what we're eating and what we're drinking. So why don't we go and see some of the cows themselves? Great. They love treats. Their, 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 sta- their staple diet is just grass. Um, but when treats come, they go crazy. <laughs> 
So we've just come out of the milking parlor just to the adjacent pen. These are our dairy cows. This is Titiksha just enjoying a little slice of watermelon. Rather than just feeding her. That's one happy cow. Yeah. In the Holy Scriptures, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, it said that drinking milk actually develops our brain tissues to a point where we can actually understand spiritual wisdom. And when we can understand spiritual wisdom, we can come to the conclusion that actually we are more than this material body. We have a soul. And that soul is connected to the divine, to Krishna, to God. So drinking milk is important. The scriptures say we have to drink milk. But the scriptures also say that we have to love and care for the cows and the oxen. And it's, it's a whole ecosystem. And, you know, do you see your role here at the manor as kind of extending outside of this place and, you know, connecting into society more widely? Do you feel you have a role in kind of change around climate and farming? 100%. We are trying our best to use Bhaktivedanta Manor as a educational hub, showing good practice. So Dora over there came from a dairy unit. So she's your, she's your typical uh, Frisian cow. Yeah. yeah, do you want to feed? I would love to feed. Oh. I really love that too. Some honeydew for you. Look at this. Mm. Every cow here has a spiritual name that stems from the Vedic uh, scriptures. But when we brought Dora, when we rescued her, we, we, we couldn't change her name. It was just so beautiful and perfect. Um, because she's a Frisian and our breed is MRI, so she's so like unique. So everyone's like, where's Dora? We love Dora. How did you know that you wanted to come to Bhaktivedanta Manor and start working with the cows and the oxen? Great question. My family have always been Hare Krishnas. And when I was younger, I've been coming here since, since I was a young child. And I always wanted to be of service because we're told from a young age that service is super important. It's actually integral to our lives. So I thought, okay, I want to be of service. How can I be of service? And my Monday to Friday job is I'm actually a biology teacher. So in school, I'm teaching students about ecosystems and climate change and agriculture. And in my spare time, I can actually um, be of physical uh, service here at a temple where the cows are looked after. So I've been here for just over 10 years working with the cows themselves. I started with the dairy side of things, and now my main service is to train the young bulls so that they can grow up to be of service on the farm. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. It's definitely a spiritual experience knowing that what we're doing is almost prescribed by the scriptures and in harmony with the natural world. Growing up in this current age, everything's technology-based and I think this everything is about connectivity. And with so much connectivity, I've often felt the most disconnected with both my friends, myself, my family, a lifestyle, the food I eat, what I drink. One of the most beautiful things about the natural world is that it's very predictable. The sun rises at a certain time, sets at a certain time, rivers will always flow towards the sea. People find comfort in knowing what to expect in nature. It's, it, it works. So when I'm working with cows and oxen, it kind of like clears my mind and the sense of reconnection with Mother Earth is, is definitely re-established when I'm working with the oxen and the cows. We're not against technology, we're not against 
anything and everything, if it's used properly and in the service of God. We want to establish our, our relationship with God so that we can leave this material world, however beautiful it is on this day, it may seem. <laughs> I know ahimsa is an important principle in your work here. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So the principle of ahimsa is non-violence. Non-violence in our thoughts, our actions, our relationships, our words, our food. So 100% non-violence is, of course, not possible. But we try to minimize the level of violence that we emanate. It's a shift in paradigm because you go from an exploitation kind of mindset that anything and everything on planet Earth is for my needs. And it shifts away from that exploitation kind of mindset to everything that we see is God's energy. And for a short moment in our lives, our lives are short. We're not here to exploit Krishna's energy. We're simply temporary caretakers of his energy. And the Holy Scriptures talk about how when we abuse Mother Earth, Mother Earth actually takes away her bounty and kind of um, unleashes a bit more distress on us. So then we see earthquakes, we see tornadoes, we see huge levels of climate change, extreme heat, extreme cold. And actually when we consider Earth to be sacred, then everything goes back into balance as it should be. I'm Holly Morse and you've been listening to World of Belief. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and be sure to check out our other episodes. Thanks to the School of Arts, Languages and Culture Social Responsibility Fund for supporting the project. This podcast was produced by Amanda Hancocks and this is a University of Manchester production.